Hello, everyone around the world. Coming to you this morning from the Tomorrow's World Studios. A real privilege for me to be here to bring the message to you today. On June 10th, 2002, the man known as the Dapper Don, a colorful but cruel and ruthless criminal, died in federal prison in Illinois. John Gotti was head of what was called a crime family. The Cosa Nostra, the Mafia, the Black Hand, with its roots in Sicily and Italy, has been a scourge in those countries for generations. It was transplanted to this country when mass immigration started just before the turn of the 20th century. The full force of state and federal law enforcement has not been able to eradicate this evil organization, even though it's tried for decades. Why have our officials been unable to stamp out the mafia and its evil activities? Why is it so tenacious? Why is it so resilient? One of the main reasons is that the structure, the organization of the mafia, is based on a very powerful unit or principle, and that is the family. The mafia, you see, is the wrong use of the family structure. The family is the basic building block of society. God intended it to be that way. His methods and his intent are made very plain in Scripture. We'll turn back to Genesis chapter 1, a good place to begin. Genesis chapter 1, in verse 28, it says, Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice, brethren, it says, be fruitful and multiply. It was within the family, and it goes on and said, and have dominion. I think the family structure certainly contributed to the fact that man could have dominion over the creation that God gave to them for their blessing. In Genesis chapter 9, Actually, uh, I want to look at Genesis chapter 5, and let's see what happened. Genesis 5, verse 4. After he forgot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he begot sons and daughters. So all the days of Adam lived, that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So we see that he did uh, it multiply, because he had sons and daughters over a very long period of time. You know the story, but let's continue on down in Genesis, the story of Noah. Genesis 9, verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So here was their instruction after the flood based on the family structure to fill the earth. And we see that they did that. We're going on down in verse 7. It says, And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. And God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. Descendants. It's all you see a part of the family structure that God knew would be a very powerful thing and could be used by him because it pictured, as we see, God's great family. Now, over in Genesis 12, very familiar scripture to you, the, the, the covenant that God made with Abram at that time. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, God was going to take Abram's family and transform it over time into a great nation. And then all the families who became nations in the earth would be blessed because of Abram's uh, obedience to God and the things that he did. God made great promises and he was able to keep them and he worked through families and still works through families. Then we see it coming on down in time 
Genesis 35, where we see a family name given. Genesis 35, verse 10. Genesis 35, verse 10. And God said to him, speaking here to Jacob, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. He said, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. So as we read this promise, we see that Israel, a family name, became a nation, a family grown great. Just looking very quickly and very briefly at these scriptures, you can see that from the very beginning, God has used families to accomplish his purpose and to accomplish his plan. Brethren, Satan hates the family. He hates God's plan. And from the very beginning, has tried to thwart it, to, to scuttle it to destroy this important institution that God uses as the very basis for society. Through the ages, Satan has attacked the family structure, family values, and members of families. That certainly is going on today. Uh, Some statistics that that prove that point. About half of first marriages and up to 60% of second marriages end in divorce in the United States. Single women as a whole are five times more likely to be poor than those who are married. Children living in single-parent homes are four times as likely to live in poverty as those in two-parent families. I think you see a pattern here. Compared to those raised in two-parent families, children of single-parent households are twice as likely to drop out of school, three times as likely to have an illegitimate child, and far more likely to use drugs and engage in other antisocial activities. One-third of American children are born out of wedlock, and I think it's really worse than that statistic actually reveals. You'll find many more disturbing numbers uh, if you look into the situation, showing that the family is rapidly becoming an endangered institution throughout much of the Western world. And those, those statistics should be shocking to us. And it just reveals that uh, the attack on family has been stepped up and greatly increased in intensity in recent years. Satan, you see, knows that his time is short. He especially wants to disrupt families in God's church as they prepare for the kingdom of God. So today, brethren, let's consider the right use of the family, its structure, and the roles of those who make up the family. We hear a lot about the dysfunctional family. What I'd like to focus on today with all of you is the functional family. Now, what did Jesus Christ teach on the subject? Turn over to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, we'll begin in verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him always trying to put Christ on the defensive, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? We read that as we begin the message today. And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man, let not man separate. And then going on, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I think if you'll look into most divorce situations, you'll find that it gets to a situation where the hearts are hardened. Maybe both, but certainly one of the partners gets to a point where it's the hardness of their heart that brings that about. He went on and said, And I say to you, Christ speaking here, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. 
showing the very serious nature of the marriage relationship. Verse 10, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man, of a man with his wife, is it better not to marry? I think they were looking for a way out. And verse 11, Christ answered them and said, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He was able to accept it. Let him accept it. Now, the subject today that we're covering is not divorce, but it's so prevalent. And its impact is so devastating, uh, we should consider what God has to say about the subject. Now, let's turn back to Malachi. Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. And God makes a a very strong statement here. Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14. Verse 13, it begins... And it says, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears. And those tears, I think, were the the wives of Israel that they divorced were certainly shedding tears over that. In verse 13, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore. God is aware of this and is not happy with this, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, whom, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Why did God create marriage and make man and wife one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none of you deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Brethren, if God hates divorce, it's something that we should take very seriously as well. But as you read this, you see there's some other things, other important principles as well. He he hates the breakup of a marriage. But it also talks here about, yet she is your companion. So clearly there are there, there's the aspect of companionship. That is so important to us as human beings. You say, well, uh, is that important? Ask a widow or a widower. Ask a bachelor who goes home to an empty home or apartment. Companionship is important to us as human beings. And it also says, and godly children, meaning children brought up, as we will see, in God's ways, taught and reared in a way that they are godly. It's an important thing that God wants. And he makes that very plain here in Malachi. So, brethren, we see that a family is made up of a husband and his wife and children. Now, some perverse individuals today want so-called same-sex pairs recognized as families. Well, now, they may prevail in the courts of this land, but they will never be a family. It's not what God intended. Now, as we talk about the family, brethren... How is it to be structured? Let's first consider the role of the husband. Back in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Dropping down to verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he, God, took one of his ribs and closed up his flesh in its place. Now here we have the first surgical procedure (laughs) that was done. Verse 22, Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to Adam. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So it's, we see this uh, account of the very beginning. Notice that Adam was made first, and then Eve to be a help suitable for him. 
Now, it's clear as you read the scriptures that from the very beginning that the patriarchs were the heads of their households. That was the normal, right order of things. Read the account of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and later Moses, and you'll see that they were responsible to lead their families. But if you also read carefully, you'll notice that their wives... Uh, played a prominent role in each of their lives. Their wives played a very prominent role, but the leadership position, which carries with it authority and responsibility, belonged to the husband. That's the order of things that the great God intended in this powerful family structure. Now, when those roles are reversed, it's, it, it was considered a curse. Let's see that in Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah, chapter 3, a verse that you're familiar with. Isaiah, chapter 3, verse 12. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, those who lead you cause you to err. So we see, uh, it goes on and says, and destroy the way of your past. When, When the roles are reversed, when... Uh, when the women rule, the, the families, the people are led astray. It's what the scripture says. And certainly we need to be on guard against that. Now, with this leadership role that the husband has goes responsibilities. Let's take a look at some of those responsibilities. Look at Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs. Proverbs 24, verse 27. Most of you will be familiar with these scriptures, but I think they have great significance, particularly as they relate to families and how the family should operate. Proverbs 24, verse 27. Prepare your work, uh, prepare your outside work, make it fit for yourself in the field, and afterward build your house. House here referring to uh, your family or your household. And what it's saying is that you should prepare Uh, You may not be a farmer, you may not have your work in the field, but prepare for your trade, prepare for your craft or your profession or your business. So many people want to cut short the preparation phase. And I've always tried to teach young people and others as we counsel that if you want to do great things, you must prepare to do great things. And preparation is something that has to be done. And so a husband should be prepared to be able then to provide and build his house and his household. Preparation is very important for the leader of the household. Uh, Turn over a few pages to Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27, verse 23. It says, Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. And some might say, Well, I'm not a farmer. I'm I'm not a herdsman, so this, this doesn't apply to me. But it applies to whatever your venture is, whatever your enterprise, whatever you do uh, to earn a living, to to make your way. It's to be diligent. Uh, obviously, it requires effort. It requires um, uh, diligence to provide for a family. And so whatever it might be, we should be diligent to know where we are and what we're doing and where we're going. It's the plans we make that guide us. It goes on and says, for riches are not forever. The person who says, well, I've got it made, may find out that that's not the case at all because riches obviously can uh, be taken away by any number of things. Nor does a crown endure to all generations. When the hay is removed and the tender grass shows itself and the, uh, the herbs of the mountains are gathered in, talking about timing, talking about the cycle that God has given us. The lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. You shall have enough goat's milk for your food and for the food of your household and the nourishment of your maidservants. Again, the principle here is that diligence is required to provide. And I think God obviously wants his people to be diligent in these things. Going right on in context in chapter 28 of Proverbs, Proverbs 28, verse 19. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread. There's another proverb that says, in all toil 
in all labor there's profit, but mere talk tends only to want or to poverty. So it does require work on our part. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows frivolity, that is things that aren't productive, things that are a waste of time, will have poverty enough. Now, if you'll think about it, brethren, a little poverty is enough. <laughs> a little poverty goes a long way. We, none of us want that. We want to have plenty. And God wants us to have plenty. And it says certainly that, uh, that uh, if we till, if we work, if we tend to our business, then God will bless us and we will not be uh, poverty stricken. Now, the New Testament has a lot to say about this as well. Turn back to First uh, uh, Timothy. Here's a principle having to do with family and the uh, father's role, the husband's role. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, Paul wrote to young Timothy, but if anyone does not provide for his own. Now, the context here is it's talking about widows and so on, but this has to do with the family structure. The principle is plain. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You see, even unbelievers know that there is this responsibility, and we should be focused on it and certainly see that one of the primary duties of the husband, the head of the household, is to provide. There's another principle here. Turn back a few pages to Second Thessalonians. When I read this, I'm reminded of a business acquaintance of mine. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 10. It says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. It's a very important principle. There's a proverb that says hunger drives a man on. And obviously, uh, God expects us to do our part. My business associate was a man in his 50s, uh, and he had a serious heart attack and had surgery and so on. And I just knew that this gentleman would probably retire. And I happened to drop by the company where he worked to, to call on them for business. And I noticed that he was in his office. And I went in and I said, I'm surprised to see you here. And my friend, who's not a member of God's church, said, you know, uh, the good Lord put us here to work. And he says, as long as I'm able to work, I'm happy to be here and to do my job and to work. And I thought, here's a man who has a grasp of this scripture, that certainly when we can be productive and we can work, we really should. And I think if you'll look around us in our society today, you'll see that a real problem in modern society is what's called the deadbeat dad. People who do not meet their responsibilities. And they have a whole bureaucracy built up to track these people down and extract uh, the uh, money that they need then, that their family needs to help take care of the children that they've engendered. So certainly, brethren, it's something that we need to grasp as God's people. But now, there's more than just being a good provider involved in being a good husband. Turn over to um, Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. Being a provider is important, but that's not all there is to it, and I wouldn't want to leave that impression at all. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15. It says, drink water from your own cistern. Here it's talking about being faithful to your spouse. And very colorful language, but I think quite clear. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad? What a waste, he says. Streams of water in the streets. Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe. What a beautiful word picture you see. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. I mean, God observes what goes on in your marriage, what goes on in your life, what goes on in your bedroom. And it says, His own iniquities entrap the wicked man. And he is caught in the cords of his sin. Hey, it, what a word picture. Sins are like a cord that will tangle you up. 
And certainly, brethren, we need to avoid those entanglements that so many people are involved in today. It says, he shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. This is talking about someone who doesn't follow this instruction. So what is it saying here, brethren? Be faithful to your wife, and don't let the fire go out. It's very important to keep the happy marriage and the happy family. On this subject, the instructions of the Apostle Paul are timeless. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2. Very plain instruction here that applies to all of us and certainly all married couples. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. Sometimes we husbands fall down in that regard. And likewise also the wife to her husband. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body. But the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Brethren, very plain instruction from the Apostle Paul. That as husbands and wives, we have responsibilities to each other in spiritual things and in physical things. And I know that when people observe these things, obviously, they have and can have a very happy marriage. Now, if you'll turn back to Ephesians chapter 4, here's a very important principle for families. You know, in close relationships, there can be very strong emotions, particularly within families. Uh, most of the time you can be very reserved with people who are outside, but someone in your family to whom you are close and with whom you are emotionally involved with and have deep feelings, then strong emotions can be stirred up, including anger. And here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, we have some really practical, really wonderful instruction on how to keep peace in the family and have peace in our lives. Ephesians 4, verse 26, it says, be angry. You know, sometimes anger is the only proper response. There is righteous indignation. There are things that set us off in that way. We should certainly never be out of control. But uh, it says, be angry. That's not wrong in itself. But he goes on and says, and do not sin. Do not let, you see, uh, anger be an occasion for sin. And do not let the sun go down on your wrath. You know, that is such wonderful instruction. He's saying, don't carry this around. Don't, don't internalize it and become bitter. Don't let this eat you up. If you're angry, get to the source of it and deal with it. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And at verse 7 says, nor give place. And my margin says, opportunity to the devil. You can be assured that Satan the devil is looking for an opportunity. And here's the admonition. Don't give it to him. Now, this instruction about dealing with anger and not letting the sun go down on it applies especially to husbands and wives. Now, what is he saying here in the modern vernacular? Paul is saying, get over it. (laughs) Work it out. And don't harbor feelings that can be destructive. What wonderful instruction. And I hope that we can learn that, brethren, and apply that. Now, right in context in Ephesians, let's go down to... Uh, chapter 5, chapter 5 in Ephesians, and we'll begin then in verse 26 as we consider the role of the husband. Ephesians 5, verse 25, husbands love your wives. You see, it was necessary that the Apostle Paul would give us a reminder Sometimes we husbands get so busy doing all the things I've been talking about, providing and doing all the things that have to be done, that we may overlook this very important thing. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Love. What is he talking about? He's talking about uh, real concern in every facet of our lives. Now, as we think about this, this loving concern, which encompasses all the different parts of the marriage relationship, sometimes uh, love is expressed by saying no. Sometimes the loving thing to do is to get the facts and to consider what's best in the long run for the family 
and for the relationship. And no is the proper answer, even though it may not be easy. Saying no to something that in the judgment of the husband is not right for the family at that time. Uh, maybe, you know, it's a bigger house or maybe a bigger, fancier car or maybe it's a career move or whatever it might be. But to work through that and to have the courage and the uh, character and the leadership to say no. Sometimes that happens. Let's go on. In verse 26, talking here, completing the sentence, talking about Christ, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, the church, with the washing of water by the word. Christ was concerned with the church, you see, just as the husband should be concerned for the wife. That he may present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. That's very plain, I think. And as human beings, we have this love of self, which is not wrong in the right way. It goes on and says, He who loves his wife loves himself. It's a godly perspective in that relationship. Verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, not in their right mind and under the right circumstances, you see. It's natural that we would want to take care of ourselves. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. If we ever wonder, is God concerned for the church? Is Christ concerned for the church? Of course he is. And should we have concern for our wives? Yes, we should. Verse 30, For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. And then he blends this analogy into the marriage relationship. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And here, verse 32 is a very profound statement, something that I hope we can grasp. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Brethren, do we get it? Do we get it? Marriage pictures Christ and the church. It's a wonderful, wonderful analogy, a picture that we can only get in that relationship. Look at Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Verse 7. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. It's talking about Jesus Christ. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. Christ and the church is what it's talking about here. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Rather than the righteous acts that you're doing in your lives now as you live the Christian life are something that is pictured in this beautiful, beautiful analogy. Verse 9, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And brethren, marriage pictures this beautiful thing that we see described here. Now, as we think about this, here we have the principle that was explained by Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-six. I won't turn there. But Paul said that first we have the physical and then the spiritual. God gives us the physical experience. We act it out. We go through it physically so that we can understand the spiritual. And I hope that you'll read 1 Corinthians 15 and really meditate on that. But we have the physical family, which pictures the spiritual family, the family of God. It's important. And we see so many expressions uh, where it's, it's actually given in that phrase. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, and let's look at some of those beautiful phrases and beautiful expressions that refer to this. Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Brother, do you see that? The, the whole family in heaven. It's, it's a beautiful picture. And we see it recorded for us. Look back at Romans. Romans chapter 8. A very familiar chapter to all of you Bible students. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Again, a family picture. Where you have the son in the family. 
Look at verse 16. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. We read that, brethren. It talks about children and heirs. Those are family terms. That's in the context of family. It's so important that we grasp that and see that. And then you know that all of our children generally look like us. They have our features. You know, they may have mommy's eyes and daddy's nose and hopefully somebody else's ears. The point is that, that we, we have this family resemblance. Turn back to 1 John 3 as we consider this family relationship. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. 1 John 3, verse 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Here's that family relationship. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. Just as our children are like us. We shall be like Jesus Christ at His return. That is in that glorified form. For we shall see Him as He is. Brethren, we're going to be uh, like Jesus Christ in this family relationship. So then, brethren, considering what marriage and family pictures, we, when we consider how important it is in God's eyes, is it vitally important that we learn the lessons and put into practice the biblical instruction concerning marriage? I think clearly, brethren, that it is. Husbands, lead your family. Provide. Nurture. Encourage your wife and your children. And when necessary, correct, instruct, and guide them with firmness, but always with love and concern and consideration. Now, let's consider the role of the wife. Turn back. Uh, actually, we've read it, so we won't turn back to Genesis chapter 2. It said back there that, that uh, God made a help meet or comparable for Adam. So the woman was created in this helper role. Now, if you look up that word, you'll see that it means precisely adapted to man. Very plain. You can look in the NIV, and it, it translates that a helper suitable for man. If you look in the New Revised Standard Version, one of my favorites, it refers to that relationship as partner. And it means suitable companion. So that's the relationship that God intended. Now, in today's society, this description of the role of woman in marriage is despised. It's rejected out of hand by the vast majority of men and women. This submissive role, this one of being helper, is just not accepted in this modern times that we see. But as we think about it, and we look in the Scripture, there's more. Turn back to Ephesians 5 again. Ephesians chapter 5. We get the instruction that we need. The instruction that we should be concerned about. Not what the world thinks. Not what the world is doing. But what God says. Ephesians 5. Verse 22. Earlier we read about the husbands in this very passage. Now we'll read about the wives. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And many modern women would say, who are you kidding? But you see, this is not instruction that we've made up. Here it is in God's word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church. There's that beautiful relationship, this analogy again. And he, Christ, is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as we picture this thing, you see, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Brethren, this is shocking to most people. How outdated. How, how old-fashioned. How ridiculous this seems to people today but though they have that attitude what's the result of that attitude what's the result of this uh, ridicule in god's word broken marriages unhappiness financial disaster 
things God never intended. He wanted people to have happy marriages and to live in peace and prosperity. As we consider these words, submit means to follow the leadership of the husband. That's what it's referring to. Doesn't mean to be subservient or a slave or in any way in subjection in that sense, but it means to follow the leadership of the husband and notice in everything. And that's a sticking point for some people. And yet I hope that we can realize that the husband has the responsibility before God to make wise decisions. And if he makes a wrong decision, then God is going to hold him responsible. And certainly we have to have this sort of uh, structure in the home for it to work well and for there to be real happiness. We're still in Ephesians chapter 5. We've read the other verses that pertain to the husband. I would like for you to look at verse 33. Ephesians 5:33 as we pick up the thought. Nevertheless, let each one of you, talking to the men, in particular, so love his wife as himself. Uh, something that's repeated two or three times here. And then it goes on. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. What a concept. And yet that's not very often done today. The wife should respect her husband. If you look up this word respect, it means to regard with deference, esteem. It means to give honor to, to pay attention to, to show consideration or regard for. That's all wrapped up in this concept of showing respect to the leader, to the head of the household. Now, As we think about these principles, let's look at more instruction now for both men and women. Turn over to Titus, Titus chapter 2, right after the book of Timothy. Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. And here we have more detailed instruction for both men and women. Titus 2 verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Sticking to the trunk of the tree, you see, sticking with the teachings that are so plain and that we've been taught. That the older men, and as I look around our audiences, I see older men, be sober. Doesn't mean, you see, never to enjoy a glass of wine or uh, something else. What it means is to have an attitude of sobriety, not frivolous, not, uh, as it goes on and says, irreverent. Let the older men be sober, reverent, temperate. You see, in food and drink and other things, you see, sound in faith and love and patience. So a big order and yet very plain instruction. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, you see, not given to gossip, not passing along the latest rumor or whatever, not given to much wine. Little wine is good. But you see, it can be misused. And so, uh, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. It goes on and says that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Where do the young women learn the things that they need to know to properly run a household? The wonderful homemaking skills that are in decline and are not being taught so often, they learn it from the older women. It's a wonderful thing. It's God's plan to see that these important skills are passed on. Verse 5, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. It's interesting that as we see these traits described, to not do them, you see, might put us in a situation where we're blaspheming God. As we read this, brethren, we understand that there are, it's a big order, and yet it talks here about being discreet. It means circumspect in speech and actions. It means to be careful and cautious. It means to be prudent. It means to be considerate. This is what we should be doing as men and women. And this certainly is talking to the women and something that we have to work on and something that we should be doing. It says also to be discreet and chaste. Chaste, uh, you can just look at uh, Exodus 20, verse 14, one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. That's the basis. To be chaste means to be faithful in that way. As we think about these things, brethren, we understand that this thread runs through Scripture. It's not an isolated thing. 
the Apostle Peter gave similar instruction. Turn over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 1. First Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, those husbands you see, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. How often has that happened where one of the spouses is not a believer? And yet, because of the good conduct and the good attitude and the wonderful example of the spouse, the believing spouse, that over time, the unbelieving spouse comes to conversion, seeing the fruits of God's Spirit. It's a wonderful thing, and God uses that within the families. Verse 2, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your beauty be that outward adorning of arranging the hair, of wearing gold, and of putting on fine apparel. But it let, let it be the hidden person of the heart. Uh, if you've married your wife strictly for her beauty, take lots of pictures because it will fade over time. And there needs to be the beauty, of course, but also the beauty of character that we'll see. Someone said that beauty is only skin deep, but ugly goes clear to the bone. And obviously we should be interested in what's inside. As it says here, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And brethren, if something is precious to God, it should be precious to us. If it's a, a trait that we can develop, if it's a skill that we can pursue, then we ought to do it if it's precious to God. Verse 5, For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. I know it's very old-fashioned, but I remember as a child hearing my grandmother, who's been gone for a long time now, refer to my grandfather as Mr. when she referred to him to someone else. If someone called and asked to speak to him, she would say, Mr. Moran is not available. Or Mr. Moran will be in at so-and-so. She always referred to her husband in that way. And it it brings to mind that Sarah called Abraham Lord. And in effect, that's what my grandmother did. It was an old-fashioned trait. And yet, it sticks in my mind after all of these years. I hope our ladies and our uh, husbands can have that kind of relationship. Now, look at verse 7. Back to the husbands. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them with understanding. So it's important that we understand our wives. You know, men and women process information differently. You can take the same set of facts and the wife can analyze that set of facts and the husband can analyze that set of facts and come up with different conclusions. God created that way. They have a different perspective. And so we need to be understanding as husbands. And it's, it's written here to remind us of that. Giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, weaker Physically, certainly often greater intellect and greater intelligence and all of those things, but, but physically weaker and having their own strengths where the men have their strengths. And as being heirs together for the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So, brethren, I think clearly as we read this, we need to see that, that, that the husbands need to understand their wives and make an effort to do that and to honor them. And if we do that, Many of the problems that we see in marriages would just evaporate like the morning dew because of the love and respect that's being put in to practice. It goes on and says that your prayers may not not be hindered. And certainly, brethren, we want our prayers to be heard. We want God to hear them and we want to be speaking the things that we should, asking for the things we should. And we we can do that if we have that good relationship. Verse 8, finally, all of you be of one mind having compassion for one another. And, you know, we tend to get tough and calloused as as time goes by. We should be compassionate, particularly in families. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. It's important, an important thing. Uh, I have a commentary here in my Bible 
Sometimes the commentaries are really good and right on, and sometimes they're not. This, I thought, was very good, and I'd like to read it to you. It says, To be subject to her husband does not imply any kind of natural inferiority on the part of the wife to the husband. In marriage, two people become one. Therefore, there are two intellects, two sets of emotions, and two wills that have been joined to constitute one. To keep the union from fracturing and destroying itself, one of those persons is charged with leadership in the relationship as one is charged with submission. I think that's very succinct and well put and in accordance with Scripture. So while the role of the wife involves submission to her husband, it is not in any way an inferior position or inferior role spiritually. The Scripture makes that very, very plain. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Husbands need to know this, and wives need to know this. The role of the wife is in no way an inferior role spiritually. Galatians 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Children of God is what it means here. For as many as of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. You see, no room for racial discrimination or racial things at all in that way. There's neither slave nor free. They certainly had to deal with that at that time. There was this physical state of being, but spiritually they were equal, you see. And there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. An important concept that all of us grasp. And if you are Christ, men and women, you see, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Women are heirs according to the promise. And it's a very important concept that all of us, whatever our gender, need to understand. Very, very important. Now, as we think about the wife, let's look at some very interesting Proverbs. Proverbs 18. Having a wife, the scripture says, is a good thing. And those of you who are happily married will say, it's a great thing. Proverbs 18. Verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing, really good, you see, and obtains favor from the Lord. So it's important. Now, it's a good thing. And I would like to encourage all of the bachelors who may have lost sight of this fact to to get busy and seek and you will find. Where does a good wife come from? Uh, Going right on Proverbs 19, verse 14. Houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers. But a prudent wife is from the Lord. Where does a good wife come from? God provides. And I hope those of you who are need a spouse and want a spouse will take it to God and ask that he will provide. And certainly we know that he will. So brethren, as we consider these things, I hope you find it encouraging. I hope it helps us to focus on the roles that we have. We've looked at the role of the husband. We've looked at the role of the spouse, the wife. Now let's briefly look at the role of children and the subject of child-rearing. Can anything be more controversial? Is there any subject that evokes more opinions or strong feelings? To spank or not to spank. How and when to this one? How much freedom and at what age? I mean, we could go on and on with this. And probably never get a consensus. Now, all of you have your opinions on this subject. Some of which are valid and some of which are not. You can tell by the fruits. Now, while we can't deal with all of the details, we might say the nuts and bolts of rearing children today, we can look at the basic principles upon which day-to-day decisions should be based May not surprise you to know that we're going back to Ephesians. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. Ephesians 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Very important. Think about this. Honor. Your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. As we read this passage, brethren, do you, the keys just jump out at you? The keys are obedience and honor. 
it's important that from infancy that our children are taught to obey and to show respect and honor. If they learn that as children, it will serve them well throughout their lives. It will open doors for them as we can see as we go on here. So it's, it's important. Now, as we go on through here in verse 4, it says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. What is it saying here? It's saying, don't be heavy-handed. Don't crush the child in that way. Think about how God deals with you as an adult patiently and with gentleness and use the same methods with your children. It says, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. If you'll analyze that, brethren, training takes thought. It takes work. It takes involvement. This is not something you can delegate. Certainly certain things in life you can delegate, but but teaching your children uh, the right way, God's ways, family values, the right mores, the things that you want them to know, the things that they should look out for, the pitfalls to avoid. This training comes from parents, and as we'll see, grandparents, and it takes work and involvement. It goes on and says, an admonition, to to admonish is to urge, to give earnest advice. There are some things that only a parent or a grandparent can teach a child. No one else will, and no one else can. So I I think as we read this, brethren, we should understand that God wants us in the family structure to bring up our children, train them, and admonish them in the Lord teaching them God's ways. It's very, very important. Brethren, do you know what your kids are listening to? Do you know what they're watching? Do you know what they're reading and what they're doing on the net? Do you know who they pal around with? What are they wearing? What do their fashions and their styles show? Uh, All of these things are things that you as parents, we as parents and grandparents have to be aware of and to deal with and have the courage and character to guide them in the way that they should go, to keep them out of this ditch and that ditch and to keep them in the way that God would have them to go. Now, let's look at the bedrock teaching of the Bible. Turn back to Proverbs 22. You know these scriptures by heart, but they're very important, and so we review them and we rehearse them and we drill because we need to know these things and we should be able to teach these things. Now... And we'll be teaching these things in the life to come. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child. We just see, we just read that in Ephesians. The Old Testament agrees with the New Testament. It agrees. You see, we are to train our children. Train up a child in the way he should go. And, And when he is old, and it could be even when he is mature or old, he will not depart from it. It may take a while for it to happen, but the Scripture's plain. It agrees with the New Testament instruction. It's something we have to do, and it's a process of years. When you have a child, it's an investment of your lifetime for years, and that's what it takes. Proverbs 13, as we consider child-rearing practices, a very important part of the family. Remember, very early we looked at God wants godly offspring. So this is where we come in. We teach them to be Godly. Proverbs 13, verse 24. He who spares his rod hates his son. Now, that takes a converted mind to understand that. Some would think, oh, well, what he cries, you know, it, it, it touches my heart. I can't do that. But, but clearly, the Scripture is plain. He who spares his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him promptly or early. And I like early better. That means when they're little. If you take care of uh, teaching your children early, if you get an early start, if you start them when they're young, later it won't be necessary. The the die will be cast, the mole will be set, and they will listen. So it's important, brethren, that we learn to properly discipline our children, not in a harsh way, not in a heavy-handed way, but in a loving, kind, effective way that can be done. Look at Proverbs 19. Proverbs 19 and verse 18. Chasten your son while there is hope and do not set your heart on his destruction. If we miss the opportunity, if we don't do it while we have control, then disaster can be the result. Because if we fail to do it, 
Uh, our child may not live to maturity. Our child may be cut off in the prime of life because they didn't have the training and the admonition that they needed. So, brethren, it's important. Train your children while you have control. Now, what happens if we fail in our child rearing? What happens if, it, if we don't do our part? The, the Proverbs covers that. Look at Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17, verse 25. Proverbs 17, verse 25. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. And certainly, brethren, we need to start young to be sure that our children do not fall into that trap and become foolish. We want our children to turn out and not be well and not cause grief and bitterness. And certainly we get our greatest pain and we get our greatest pleasure from our children. Now, if our children do listen, which is what we want, if, our, if they do listen, what's the result? Proverbs 15 talks about that. It shows that it's very worthwhile for your time and effort to do the training that it takes. Proverbs 15, verse 20. A wise son makes a father glad. And as I said, we get our greatest pleasure when our children do well. It's an important thing. But a foolish man despises his mother. He might not verbalize that, but you can tell by his actions. If he doesn't do what pleases his family, if he doesn't do what's right in God's eyes, it's like he despises his mother and his family. So gladness, happiness is when our children do well. Now, do grandparents have an important role in child rearing? I think that's important. Look at Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17, verse 6. Children's children are the crown of old men. And as an older man, I can tell you, that is a true proverb. Your grandchildren are like a crown. They, they make you so happy when you see those children of your children. And the glory of children is their father. And hopefully it will always be that way, that a child can take a right kind of pride and satisfaction in having a loving father. A crown. What a beautiful picture that you see there. Proverbs 13. Do grandparents have a role? Proverbs 13. Verse 22, it says a good man, and all of us want to fit that description, all of us want to be seen as good in God's eyes, doing the things that he wants us to do. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Think of that, an inheritance to grandchildren. But the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Well, some of you may say, well, I, you know, I am... I don't, I don't have money, I don't have assets, so I can't leave an inheritance to my children or my children's children. Well, brethren, an inheritance may not be money. It doesn't have to be money. It can be family history. It can be good values. And in many cases, it can be teaching them God's way of life. What an inheritance. What a, it's more valuable than gold and silver and stocks and bonds and real estate. It's, it's much more, those things will perish, but an understanding of God's way of life will not. Let's look at an example, 2 Timothy. Here we have the book of Timothy. We have the story of this young man who was used so powerfully by God. And we find out where he got his start. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5. Breaking into the sentence, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, Paul evaluated Timothy and said his faith was genuine, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded is in you also. Timothy's grandmother Lois taught him. And look at the wonderful fruit that it bore down in time. Brethren, uh, grandparents have a role to play in the family and in child rearing, probably more than you may realize. You have a positive effect on your grandchildren. Brethren, today we've taken an overview of a very important subject, that is family life, and how God would have us to conduct our families. I'd like to uh, turn to Colossians 3, Colossians chapter 3, because it summarizes the instruction beautifully. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18. Beautifully put, succinct, and to the point. <clears throat> Colossians 3 verse 18. Wives, 
Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. 20, verse 20, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And Father, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. It's a functional family described in these versions, these verses in Colossians. Brethren, Satan is trying his best to destroy families, but he will not succeed. A marriage and a family based on the principles we've considered today will give the members of that family a foretaste of an even greater relationship with God in his kingdom. You see, the coming kingdom of God in the simplest terms will be a large, happy family that will last forever. The ultimate functional family. 